The following message was recorded at Shades Valley Community Church in Homewood, Alabama. For more information and resources from Shades Valley, please visit us at shadesvalley.org. Today's scripture reading is from Revelations chapter 2, verses 8 through 11. And to the angel of the church of Samaria write, The words of the first and the last who died and came to life. I know your tribulations and your poverty, but you are rich, and the slander of those who say that they are the Jews and are not, but are the synagogues of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, and the one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So I do invite you to open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 2, if you've not done so yet. Um, I will never forget in 2015 when the terrorist group ISIL captured 21 Egyptian Coptic Christians. And on February the 15th of that year, they released a video in which they beheaded, murdered our brothers in Christ. Persecution, suffering, even martyrdom. These, these are not things of the past. They have always been and continue to be a present reality for the church. Jesus promised that they would be. John chapter 15 and verse 20, if they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. That's a promise. Persecution will come. It's not something we seek. Please, in all that I'm about to say today, do not hear me saying that persecution is something that we strive for and go after. No, we don't seek it, but it comes. Anyone who would preach to you otherwise is not preaching the promises of Christ. John 16 and verse 2, Jesus says, Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering a service to God. That was the, the thought of the terrorist group ISIL. They thought they were offering a service to their God. Now, here's the deal as we begin to broach this subject. Like, I recognize that presently in our Western American context, we don't face much in the way of physical persecution. I recognize that, but I, I wonder if you've ever been ridiculed for your faith, slandered, insulted. I, I remember the first time I was, I was, I was in kindergarten. I wonder if you've ever lost customers or jobs or experienced economic pressures because of your faith. 
There's a lot of economic pressures that happen within our culture in order to get people who are in the business field to conform with the cultural values at large. If you hold to any kind of standard Christian orthodoxy, you're looked at as backwards and bigoted. Have you ever been looked at that way? I've been called a bigot on multiple occasions while trying to love people. I wonder if you've ever lost friends, been socially ostracized. These are all very real possibilities if you publicly proclaim Christ in our culture. And Scripture, I think we're going to see it very clearly today, and it's all over the place, Scripture confirms that these things, slander, economic pressures, social ostracization, these things are typically precursors of increasing persecution. I'm not trying to be prophetic. I'm not trying to say what I think we will or will not experience during our lifetime. I'm not trying to scare us. I'm just trying to prepare us for whatever we face. Because here's the deal. When we hear a story, when we remember stories like that of our Egyptian Coptic brothers in Christ and and how they gave their very lives for the gospel, when, when we hear about that kind of courage, I think we often, I know I do, often wonder how in the world could they have that kind of courage. Because I, I cower under slander much less slaughter. Like, I don't know about you, but even when milder forms of persecution come my way, I find my courage fleeing. How, how in the world are we supposed to be a people who suffer persecution with courage in Christ? How are we going to have courage to cling to Christ when it costs us something? How why? Why should we faithfully cling to Christ if it costs us everything? These are questions at the heart of what Revelation aims to reveal, to unveil. What One of this book's primary themes is that of suffering and how Christians are supposed to endure it faithfully until the very end. How are we supposed to do that? Revelation aims to answer that question. It aims to answer that question by revealing to us the reason we should faithfully cling to Christ. And that reason is the thing, it turns out to be the thing that will empower us with courage to cling to Christ. Did you catch what I just said? Revelation reveals to us the reason why we should cling to Christ. And when we see that, it becomes the very thing that empowers us to do the clinging. They're one and the same. Shades, we must see this because suffering, persecution, martyrdom are not these are not things of the past second timothy 3 12 all who desire to live a godly life in christ jesus will be persecuted how are we going to have courage to cling to christ when it costs us something why should we faithfully cling to christ when it costs us everything this is what we need to see and i think we see it in revelation chapter 2 verses 8 through 11 because the church in smyrna needed to see this too Revelation 2, look at verse 8. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, the words of the first and the last who died and who came to life. So remember with me, okay, we're four weeks in. Remember with me that Revelation is addressed to seven churches in Asia Minor. That's modern-day Turkey. And in chapters 2 and 3, we get these Seven personalized, individualized messages to each one. We did the first one last week to the church at Ephesus. That's where the letter of Revelation would have landed first, coming from the island of Patmos. Then it would have journeyed about 35 miles north and hit Smyrna. So in chapters 2 and 3, we get these seven messages. And 
And we're slowing down and walking through them one at a time because these messages really help to give us a lens for reading the rest of the book of Revelation. Why does it do that? It does that because these messages are sandwiched between two visions. Recall in Revelation chapter 1, right at the end of it, we saw a vision of the resurrected and reigning Christ. When we get done with these seven messages and get to Revelation 4 and 5, we're going to run into another vision, very similar. This one will be of the throne room of the triune God, where he rules and he reigns right now. Sandwiched between those two visions of God ruling and reigning now, presently active among his churches now, sandwiched between those two visions, we get the situations of these seven struggling and suffering churches. And this gives us a lens for what the book of Revelation is doing as a whole. These churches are meant to see their situations surrounded by the reality of the ruling and reigning Christ, their sovereign Savior. He is present with them in their situations. That's how the vision ends in chapter 1. Christ present among the seven lampstands of his churches, ruling and reigning. Revelation aims to unveil how these churches' situations look from Christ's perspective as he rules and reigns. All, all these churches, they need to see their struggling and their suffering from, from the perspective of Christ. All they may be able to see is their suffering and struggling, but the book of Revelation pulls back the curtain to unveil true reality in light of Christ's sovereignty. And that's what's happening in the message to the church at Smyrna, specifically with suffering and persecution. Each of these messages deals with, with one or more primary themes that the rest of the book of Revelation will address. And the message to Smyrna addresses the theme of suffering, which shouldn't surprise us. And in the first century world, the, the very name of this city, Smyrna, was associated with the notion of suffering because the Greek word for myrrh is Smyrna. They sound the exact same. This probably isn't the real place the city's name came from, but even the first century world, they associated the two. Myrrh, you, you'll recall, is a, uh, a spice. Uh, you might recall it from the famous list of the gifts given to Christ by the Magi, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Myrrh was a spice that was used for burial to anoint the dead. It's associated with death, with suffering. And the city of Smyrna picked up on that association, and they used it to tell their history, their story, in a powerful way that would captivate the, the imaginations of their citizens and capture the affections of their hearts. Smyrna was a very proud city. And part of that was, in fact, to the powerful way that they, was due, in fact, to the powerful way they told their story. How they tell their story. Well, myrrh, as we know, which is the name of the city, myrrh, it, it was used to anoint the dead, and Smyrna was once dead. Many, many years ago, the city had been utterly and completely destroyed. But in about 290 BC, a resurrection happened. The city was rebuilt to become a, a place known for its beauty, its wealth, its 
power. It was known for its its beauty. The city was gorgeously designed. It was it's nestled into a little bay area built at the base of this mountain called Mount Pegas. And, and Mount Pegas had this thoroughfare that went around it called literally the Street of Gold. It, it looked like a, a necklace adorning the statue of a goddess because atop of Mount Pegas, they built an acropolis that literally became known as the Crown of Smyrna. It was like they were built at the foot of a goddess with a gold necklace and a crown on her head. It, Imagine this place's beauty as you pull into port. It was known for its beauty. It was known for its wealth. Smyrna's Bay location made it a metropolitan city of trade. It was second, really, only to Ephesus in Asia Minor. And you could see their wealth on display through their investment in leisure. They, they boasted about their stadium and their library. Annabeth is here. Yes, they boasted about their library. They boasted about having the largest public theater in Asia Minor. Like imagine Smyrna's wealth, beauty, wealth, and, and power. Smyrna had been very quick to ally itself with the Roman Empire when it was on its rise. And they remained faithful to Rome in the extreme. Like just walking this city's streets would bombard you with images of its powerful relationship that it had with, with Rome. They were the first in Asia Minor to build a temple to worship the city of Rome, which was deified as a goddess, Roma. They built a temple to worship the city, first to do that. Later, they would also dedicate a temple to worship of the emperor. I mean, when Smyrna's greatest and most faithful citizens died, they would actually honor them with the inscription of their name inside of a carved conqueror's crown, a stephanos. It's what, it's what you would award as a wreath, that you would award someone who was victorious in the games. They would carve one of those crowns with your name in it if you were one of their most faithful citizens, faithful to Rome. Imagine being honored by this powerful city with such a powerful image beauty, wealth, power. Smyrna's story captured the hearts of its citizens. And its images of beauty, wealth, and power captivated their imaginations, inspiring them to live, to, to live and die faithfully for the beauty, wealth, and power of Smyrna, to receive a crown to honor their life. Like in Smyrna, this is what life was all about. Which is why it became a city of suffering for the first century church. Because that first century church, their lives were not aimed at faithfulness to Smyrna. Not ultimately. It was aimed at faithfulness to their Savior. And thus Christians quickly realized they could no longer participate in the power of this city. They couldn't worship the city of Rome as a goddess. They couldn't make sacrifices or offer incense to the emperor. That kind of faithfulness they could give to God and God alone. They couldn't worship the city's power. Thus, they found themselves opposed by the powerful. Look, look at verse 9. Jesus says, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not but are a synagogue of Satan. These Christians are facing slander. 
coming from a powerful population of Jews in the city of Smyrna. They, there was a powerful population of them there. They threw around a lot of weight politically. The Jews were actually very unique uh, as a people group in the Roman Empire. Almost everyone the Romans conquered, they would take on some of their gods, give some of their gods to, to that people, kind of mix them in and just get them in and a part of the religious economic power system. But they found that to be very difficult with the monotheistic Jews. However, they allowed the Jews not to have to participate in the imperial cult, not to have to worship the emperor. They allowed them to do that because they were an ancient people with an ancient land. They wanted them as a part of their empire. They were unique in that way. And so here's the deal. When Christianity first began to blossom, Rome just thought it was another movement amidst the Jewish people. I mean, Judaism had several different movements within it. Rome's like, ah, Christians, it's just another sect of Judaism. And as long as they saw it that way, then Christians were pretty much safe. But if the Jews began to say to Rome, these Christians, they are not with us. They are not a part of us. We, we are true Jews, the people of this monotheistic God we've told you about who belong to that land, Israel. They are not. They're, they're, they're a religion that does not belong to any particular race. They're a religion that does not belong to any particular place or, or, or people. If that happened, then Rome would take issue with Christianity as an illegal religion, and for one reason or another, this does seem to be exactly what's happening in Smyrna. Persecution has begun with Christians being slandered socially. And that has led to them being impoverished economically. They're not just being excluded from participating in the power of Smyrna, but also from its wealth. Look back at near the beginning of verse 9. Jesus says, I know your poverty. That's a part of their tribulation. They're not just poor because they're poor. This has to do with their tribulation, their persecution, their suffering. They Most likely as a result of being slandered as unfaithful to Rome. They're not with the Jews. They're, they're unfaithful Roman citizens making up their own religion. They don't even worship the emperor. They're, as a result of being slandered and unfaithful to Rome, because they won't participate in the Roman cult, they're being excluded from things like trade guilds. People likely won't buy from them or sell to them. Any wealth that they had amassed has dissipated and disappeared very quickly. They're excluded from participating in the city's power, excluded from participating in its wealth, and yes, also its beauty. Look at what Jesus says is coming in verse 10. Do not fear what you're about to suffer. Going through social and economic persecution, those are precursors. It's about to heat up. Do not fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested. And for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death. Don't say ten days and you get out. Ten days and you might die. Be faithful unto death. Social exclusion, economic pressure, these are only precursors of increasing persecution. Prison is coming, Jesus says. And so is something even less beautiful. Ugly defeat and death. This is not the honorable death that the citizens of Smyrna desired. You know, where you, you get your name engraved in the conqueror's crown? No, this would be death 
in defeat and disgrace. This is anything but beautiful. These Christians need to be locked up away from the beauty of the city and ultimately killed completely and permanently extracted from the beauty of the city. Like how, how could these Christians in Smyrna see the reality that they are facing, the suffering they're facing, any other way? They lived day after day in a city that took aim at capturing their hearts and captivating their imaginations with images of its own beauty and wealth and power, a, a culture that defined for them the very purpose of life. And they're going to have to let all of that go if they want to cling to Christ. How in the world are they supposed to have courage to cling to Christ when it might cost them something? And why? Why would they faithfully cling to Christ if it was going to cost them everything? Shades. What Smyrna and we need to see is a totally different reality than what's in front of their eyes. We need to see a totally different reality. The story this world uses to capture our hearts and the images it uses to captivate our imaginations are false and fleeting. Including the ones of our world. Stories and images of politics that promise power. Story and the images of financial success in the stock market that promise wealth. Story and the images of Instagram and every social media platform you want to scroll to, through that, that shows you how to have a life full of beauty and be a beautiful person. We're inundated stories and images that are after our hearts and our imaginations to tell us what life is all about and all of those images all of those stories are false and fleeting we need our hearts captured by the story that's really real and we need our imaginations captivated by the images of true beauty true wealth and true power we need real reality revealed is what revelation does a revelation and unveiling of what's really real. What, what we need, Shane's, is what my kids needed after they saw the film Monsters, Inc. for the first time. I don't know if you're familiar with this film, but it takes the, I love Pixar, by the way, but this film, it takes the primordial fear of all children that monsters live in their closet and basically says, yep, kids, that's true. It's actually a really cute movie, but if you're a little kid, it's tantamount to a horror film. My children watched this as if it was a documentary, like confirming all of their worst fears. The story captures their hearts, and its images captivate their imagination to the point they cannot imagine reality any other way. If I, as a father, am going to fill their hearts with courage to face the darkness of their bedrooms each night, then I'm going to have to recapture their imagination. I'm going to have to replace the powerful, scary images of Monsters, Inc. with even more 
powerful images that will redefine reality for my kids. Images that will reveal reality as it truly is. And Shades, this is what I think in this message to Smyrna, this is what Jesus is doing for Smyrna and for us. He, he takes this Revelation chapter 2 situation and he helps us see it through the lens of the visions that surround it. The visions of chapter 1 and chapters 4 and 5 that show him as ruling and reigning and sovereign. He takes this suffering of Smyrna and helps us see it through the lens of his sovereignty. And Jesus redefines our reality, our reality, capturing our hearts and captivating our imaginations with true beauty, wealth, and power so that we are filled with courage to cling to Christ. Shades, let's walk back through this text and let's see Jesus reveal, see it with me, see him reveal true reality. He starts with the very way he introduces himself. Look again back up at verse 8. The words of the first and the last who died and came to life. Those are words from Revelation chapter 1, verses 17 and 18. He's saying, let's see your situation, Smyrna, through that lens, the lens of who I am. The first and the last. That's a straight-up claim to be the sovereign God overall. Comes right off the pages of the prophet Isaiah. I'm the first. I created everything, brought it into being. And I'm the last. I will bring all of history to a beautiful conclusion. And I am sovereign. Because I'm the first and the last, you can know that I am sovereign over everything in between. I rule Smyrna, not Rome. That's reality, Shades. Jesus says, that's reality, Smyrna. I don't care what kind of story your city has told you to convince you of its power. I'm the only one who actually died and came back to life. Do you see that? He says, I am the first and the last who died and came back to life. In other words, Smyrna, your city may claim a resurrection in its history, but I'm the only one who's really risen. That's my story. Do you see what Jesus is doing, Shades? He's redefining reality with a truer, deeper, more powerful story than Smyrna has to offer. He's redefining it with the story of his sovereignty. And that will redefine all of their suffering. We begin to see it in the very next verse. Look at verse 9. Jesus says, I know your tribulation. I know it. You're not alone in this. I know. I see. I'm here ruling and reigning. And, and let me just say, I know that as we talk about Jesus present amidst our suffering, ruling and reigning, that that's a difficult picture and it causes us to ask a lot of questions. And we're going to tackle some of those questions throughout the book of Revelation because the saints themselves in the book will ask it. How long, O oh Lord? Why, if you're sovereign, don't you bring this to a close? We'll tackle some of that as we go. But here's the good news of the sovereignty of God. Even if it causes you to ask a lot of questions about the suffering in your life, if God is sovereign, he can do what he promises to do, and that's bring your suffering to an end. If he's not sovereign, it may eliminate all the questions you have about why you're suffering. Well, I'm suffering because he can't do anything about it. But it also eliminates your hope. Sovereignty gives us hope. The fact that Christ reigns means he gets to redefine our suffering and tell us what's actually going on and why. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not but are a synagogue of Satan. J Jesus, do you see what he's doing? He didn't just do it in the, he, he, well, 
excuse me, he's flipping everything on its head. He didn't just do that in the beginning with how he introduced himself. Let me take the story of your city, flip it on its head, tell you that's really my story. He's doing it with everything. You think you're poor, you're rich. Those who claim they're Jews, they're not. They're not the people of God, you are. They're a synagogue of Satan. The, the title Satan literally means the accuser. That's why these Jews are called a synagogue of Satan, because they are aligning themselves with Satan's purposes. They're doing what he does to the people of God. They're accusing them. Of what? Of not truly being God's people. We're true Jews. They're not. We're really God's people. They're not. These Jews claim to be the true people of God while slandering the Christians of Smyrna as not a part of God's people. But Jesus says it's the other way around. Those claiming to be Jews, God's people, Jesus says, not. For as Paul says in Romans 2 and verse 28, no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart. In other words, Paul is saying you're not a part of the people of God by flesh, but by faith. This is why Jesus tells Nicodemus, you can't get more Jewish than Nicodemus in John chapter 3. He's Pharisee, leader and teacher amongst his people. He probably traces lineage back to Abraham for all we know. Jesus tells Nicodemus, it doesn't matter if you're a Jew according to the flesh and can trace your lineage all the way back to Abraham. You must be born again. Born of the Spirit of God to be part of the people of God, to be part of true Israel. For as Paul says in Galatians 3 and verse 7, it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. Not those of the flesh, those of the faith who are the sons of Abraham. In fact, you might remember what Jesus told the Pharisees in John chapter 8 when they claimed to be the true children of Abraham. He said to them, John 8, verse 44, Abraham's not your father. You are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. That sounds a lot like Jesus' words right here in Revelation 2 as he redefines reality for these suffering Christians who have been feeling powerless. He redefines their suffering in light of his sovereignty. And he says, you are the people of the all-powerful one who rules the world. The synagogue, the local synagogue of the accuser may slander you, but he speaks lies. You are mine. Don't believe anything different. Feel powerless? You are a part of the people of the all-powerful one. Do you believe it, Smyrna? Do you believe it, Shades? When the world doesn't let you participate in its power, will you cling to Christ because you believe you belong to the people of the all-powerful one? Or will you let go of him in order to just scrape up some temporary power that the world has to offer? Cling to Christ. What about when the world doesn't let you participate not only in its power but in its wealth? Remember that as a result of these Christians being persecuted socially, they're having hardships economically. Christ says, I know your poverty. But again, 
What does he do? He redefines their suffering in light of his sovereignty. I know your poverty, but you are rich. How? How are they rich? Imagine a rich man and a poor man aboard the Titanic. A story to which I think we all know the ending. Imagine this rich man in his fine clothes with his fat wallet and the poor man with nothing except an inflatable lifeboat. That's how these Christians are rich. The world, with all the wealth it has to offer, will perish. It will sink like the Titanic that it is. But those who have Christ have life. That's why Paul says in 2 Corinthians 6 and verse 10 that we are poor yet making many rich, having nothing yet possessing everything. Shades, what will it profit you to gain all the profits of this world and yet forfeit your soul? Christ is the pearl of great price that is worth losing everything for because when we do that, we're actually losing nothing, but we're gaining everything because we're gaining Him. Do you believe it, Shades? When the world doesn't let you participate in its wealth, will you cling to Christ because you believe He is ultimate, true wealth? What about when the world doesn't let you participate in its beauty? Look at verse 10. Do not fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Jesus turns his attention from what's currently happening to the Christians in Smyrna to what is coming for them. They're Culture might currently be excluding them from participating in power and wealth, but what's coming is complete exclusion. Smyrna as a city is going to conclude that to keep their city and their way of life beautiful, they're going to have to remove Christians from it completely. Imprisonment is what's coming. But Christ flips it on its head. Notice notice three things. Notice who this imprisonment is from. Notice what it's for, and notice how long it lasts. First, this imprisonment is from the devil. Verse 10 says, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison. Now, obviously, Rome is going to be the actual legal human power that imprisons these Christians. So that begs the question, why does verse 10 focus on the spiritual reality behind the human one. Revelation is going to do this all over the place. It'll present us with some human realities regarding persecution, but it will nearly always unveil the spiritual realities behind that. We battle not against flesh and blood. I think that the reason that verse 10 focuses on the spiritual reality behind the human one is because Christ wants us to know who the true enemy is. Remember, In this letter, in Revelation, Christ is unveiling true reality about these Christians' suffering situation. And part of that is unveiling who the true enemy is. The true enemy is not Rome who's imprisoning you. The true enemy is is the devil. The true enemy is not the, the Jews who are slandering you. It's Satan, the accuser. 
That's why the synagogue belongs to him. Now, I point that out, not because none of this changes the fact that these persecutors are responsible for their actions, but it completely changes how Christians act towards their persecutors. For they are not our ultimate enemy. Here's the deal, Shays. Many people in the past and now, even in the present, have used texts like this one. We talk about the synagogue of Satan. Texts like the entire book of Revelation. It pushes back hard against the imperial power of Rome. It condemns it outright. Many people in the past and even now have used these kinds of texts to be anti-Semitic, to be anti-culture, to be anti-government. They've used these passages or twisted the entire book of Revelation to justify their own violent actions. And shades, the reality is nothing could be further from the call that Revelation places on the lives of the people of God. It does not call us to violent, revolutionary, uprising action against governments or against persecutors in the slightest. This book does not call us to war against our culture or our world or even people who would call themselves our enemies. This book does not call us to war against them, but to die for them. To lay down our lives as a witness to the world of the love of Christ. We are a people who follow the Lamb slaughtered lamb who died for his enemies. We cannot bear witness to that love in any other way than to likewise be willing to suffer and die for those who call themselves our enemies. The people of this world, they are not our ultimate enemy. No, they are held captive by our ultimate enemy. And our aim is to defeat him by liberating them. We do this when we show them the worth of Christ by clinging to Him when we, even when we suffer the loss of everything else. We show them the surpassing worth of Christ, that He's worth more than anything this life has to offer, even life itself. I think, I think that's the very next thing we see. Remember, I told you we saw three things. We're going to see three things about this imprisonment. So first, we saw the imprisonment, who it's from. It's from the devil. The second thing we need to notice about the imprisonment is the purpose that it's for. Look at verse 10. Verse 10 says, These Christians are being imprisoned so that you may be tested. So that you may be tested. What does that that mean? I think you can take that purpose in two different ways. It could be Satan's purpose so that you may be tested, tempted. Tempted is a legitimate way to translate the Greek word right there. So that you may be tested, tempted, in hopes that your faith will fail. It could be Satan's purpose. Or it could be taken as God's purpose. That you may be tested and your faith may prove true as a witness to the world of the worth of Christ. So whose purpose is it? Satan's or God's? Yes. It's both. I... I feel it's almost always both shades. In all of your suffering, Satan aims to destroy your faith as a means of defaming God's name. You can talk about your suffering that way. Paul did. 2 Corinthians 12, thorn in his side, a messenger given to me by Satan to torment me. Try and destroy his faith as a means of defaming God's name. 
but you may also in all of your suffering know that God has a purpose, God has an aim, and God's aim is for your faith to display his worth to the world. Paul says that about his thorn in 2 Corinthians 12. It was given to him to keep him from becoming conceited. That's not Satan's purpose, that's God's purpose. Paul ends up relying more upon the power of God for the glory of God. His grace is sufficient for me. And his power is made perfect in weakness. Through my very weakness, I'll depend upon him more to show his power to what we have, this surpassing power in these weak jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is not from us, but from him. In all of your suffering, God aims for your faith to display his worth to the world. For you clinging to him, witnesses to the world that he is worth more than all suffering can cause you to lose. Because we know that in the end, suffering doesn't win. We see that in the third thing that we notice about this imprisonment. We notice who it's from, what it's for, and now the third thing, how long it lasts. Ten days. Ten days. Now, we know from our study thus far that numbers in Revelation tend towards being symbolic. And I do think that that is what is going on here. It could be referring to a literal 10-day imprisonment, but 10 is going to get reused throughout Revelation a couple of times. And I think that that's what's going on here, primarily not because of 10 just getting used symbolically throughout the book, but because throughout the book we are going to see various numbers used in relation to suffering that Christians experience in this world. And these numbers, though they vary, the point will not. The point is always that suffering doesn't last forever. It's for a defined period of time. The point is that God is sovereign over our suffering, and he gets to decide when it comes to a conclusion, when it ends. I think that that's the point here. This suffering won't be forever. It will come to a conclusion. It will end. And when you get to the end, in light of eternity, it won't seem very long at all, like a mere 10 days. You'll be able to say with Paul, 2 Corinthians 4 and 17, that all the suffering you experienced in this world was light and momentary. This light, momentary affliction. It's light and momentary only when you compare it with the eternal weight of glory that awaits us. I think that this 10-day period means that suffering will not last forever. And I think it means that God will supply you with everything you need by his power for every step of the way while you're in the midst of those 10 days. I think that's ultimately the point of it being 10 days. We've seen already that John the Apostle relies a lot on prophecies from Daniel. You go back to Daniel and it's really the only place in the Old Testament where you will find a 10-day testing period. Do you remember from chapter 1 when Daniel and his friends first show up in Babylon? And they're told that they need to eat from the king's table. And they say, no, we want to we obey the law of God and eat the food that he's instructed us to eat. And they are allowed to go under a 10-day testing period. And the 10 days is meant to prove what will sustain them better. The table of the greatest king and kingdom in the world, Babylon, or the table of their king, God. 
And they are sustained by obeying the word of God. And I think that that's Jesus' point right here in Revelation 2 with this whole 10 days thing. God will supply all that is needed to sustain you throughout your entire 10 days, even if your 10 days ends in death. Look at the very end of verse 10 again. For 10 days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. Be faithful unto death. Let nothing distract you or pull you away. Not not any story or image of power or wealth or beauty that this world has to offer. Be faithful unto death. Even if it means that you don't get to participate in the power of this world. Shades, don't sacrifice your witness to Christ by compromising faithfulness so that you can grab onto a little bit of political power on the right or on the left. Our our witness to this world will be its strongest, not by winning elections, but by losing anything and everything, even positions of power, in order to remain faithful to Jesus. Don't sacrifice faithfulness to Jesus for the power that this world has to offer you. Shades stand in contrast to the corrupt powers of this world by faithfully clinging to Christ, clinging to the reality that you are a part of the, all, of the people of the all-powerful one. Cling to Christ. Be faithful unto death. Be faithful unto death, even if it means that you don't get to participate in the wealth of this world. Even if holding on to your convictions is costly to you because people won't buy from you or people won't employ you or people won't work with you. Stand in contrast to the wealth of this world by faithfully clinging to the reality that you possess the greatest treasure, Jesus. Cling to Christ. Be faithful unto death. Be faithful unto death, even if that means that by death itself, this world tries to exclude you from participating in its beauty. They kill you in order to dishonor you. You can forget having your name engraved in a conqueror's crown like Smyrna's faithful citizens. Oh, but shades believe the reality that through faithfulness to Christ, even in death, you will experience true conquering and receive a greater crown. Not to honor your life, no, you will receive a crown that is life this is how we conquer because this is how christ conquered revelation 12 and verse 11 they have conquered by the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony for they loved not their lives even unto death Christ, the Lamb of God, laid down his life, died, rose again, conquering death itself. And we cling to him, even if he takes us following him through the grave, because he paved that way as the path to conquering. And this, this is a witness to the world of the worth of Christ. I'll follow him even into the jaws of death itself, fearlessly, courageously, because I conquer that way. He is worth more than anything this temporary life has to offer. He's worth more than this temporary life because he gives me eternal life that nothing can take away. Just look at verse 11. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. The second death, eternal death, ultimate death, in the the lake of fire from Revelation 20 and verse 14. 
Jesus says that death cannot hurt you because you have received the crown of life that cannot be taken from you precisely because it is the crown of life, eternal life. Eternal life to fully enjoy the all-powerful, the greatest wealth of treasure, the, the ultimate beauty of Jesus forever. Beat that, Rome. Beat that, world. Just try to capture my heart with a greater story or my imagination with greater imagery. You can't beat the story of the one who died and rose again. And you can't top the image of a crown that defines true life. Life that gets Christ. Shades, this, this is the reason we should faithfully cling to Christ. And this is the thing, this reason is the thing that will empower the courage to cling to Christ. He is true life. That's the reason to cling to him. That's what will empower the courage to cling. He is true life. He is the crown. Shades, cling to the crown. Cling. Christ.